This message comes from NPR sponsor Stripe. Tap to pay on iPhone, and Stripe can help you grow your business's revenue and reach through accepting more in-person, contactless payments right from an iPhone. To learn how, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Hey, it's Guy here. So today's show is all about the secrets that we sometimes keep and the effects of those secrets being out in the open. It first aired in January of 2015, but this time around, we've gone back to one of our speakers and we have an update on where her work has taken her since we last spoke. She's an anti-corruption activist who tries to shed light on corporate and government corruption. This episode is called Keeping Secrets and hope you enjoy it. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that... Delivered at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. Frank Warren collects secrets right here at his home in suburban Maryland. So what time does the mail come usually? The mail comes normally between 12 and 2 o'clock. Around that time, every day. Do you know your mail mailman? There have been a few mail carriers. Um, yeah, Eric is the current mail carrier. Frank walks down his driveway to what is easily the most famous mailbox in all of Germantown, Maryland. And you can see there's some writing on the mailbox. People come from all over and leave little messages on the mailbox. Hmm. Sometimes I look out my window and I see people taking selfies with them in the mailbox. That's because this mailbox is where, for the last decade... Every day but Sunday. Frank's gotten over half a million postcards, each with a secret written right on it. So here's the mail. Pretty typical mix of postcards, personal letters, bills, (laughs) packages. It's pretty simple how the postcards get here. Frank asks people to send them publicly using his home address. And then he scans them and shares them on a blog that you may have heard about. It's called Post Secret. And every single day, more postcards arrive. Yeah, every day. Every day there's mail. And the secrets can take you on this emotional journey. You know, sometimes... You don't know what to prepare for when you open up the mailbox. Some make you laugh, some get you emotional, some remind you of other secrets or maybe a family member. A lot of the postcards look homemade. They have cut out letters and tape and old family photos and tracings and drawings and handwriting of all kinds. And the only thing they have in common is they're all anonymous. And Frank, he reads every single one. Can we take a look at some? Sure, let's find them out at the table. So even even though I've been doing this for more than a decade now, I still feel like a a kid Christmas morning every day. The secrets come and strangers are trusting me with these confessions they've never told anyone else before. This one looks like it's a cutout of a page from a children's book. The Giving Tree, The Giving Tree. Yeah. I had an abortion, and to this day, I wonder if my baby forgives me. Wow. That's quite a secret to start with today. So a secret like that really reminds us that there's this this world of of hidden life and relationships and ideas and behaviors out there all the time. This one says, everyone knows a different version of me, but only I will ever know the whole story if I can remember it all. Some things are best kept secrets. Wow. It's the tip of the iceberg. It's like... What's that out in the universe, the, the dark material that makes up 90% of what the universe is and we can't sense it or detect it in any way? We just see how it behaves based upon the effects on other objects. This one says, I'm glad you lied because God knows I couldn't be a Mormon. <laughs> There's a picture of a ballerina on this postcard. It says, I quit because seeing myself in a leotard every day was killing my self-esteem. This one says, I watched six of my friends get married in 2014. I'm single and don't even think about marriage. I'm happier and more in love with life than any of them. Why do you think people share secrets with you? 
I think in some ways they're not sharing them with me as much as they're sharing them with themselves. I've gone through postcards on this table, and I've seen pictures of circumstances. I've read stories that have reminded me of parts of my life that I buried long ago. Every day we make that decision. What do we conceal? What do we reveal? It's a very human condition. Our show today is all about keeping secrets. We all have them, small ones, embarrassing ones, scary ones. Sharing a secret can be cathartic or intimate, and keeping it buried can be corrosive. And sometimes we're not really given a choice, right? Our secrets aren't secret. Later in the show, we'll hear from journalist Glenn Greenwald on that idea. But first, back to Frank Warren, who explained in his TED Talk how Post Secret came to be. It all started with a crazy idea in November of 2004. I printed up 3,000 self-addressed postcards, just like this. They were blank on one side, and on the other side, I listed some simple instructions. I asked people to anonymously share an artful secret they'd never told anyone before. And I handed out these postcards randomly on the streets of Washington, D.C., not knowing what to expect. But soon the idea began spreading virally. People began to buy their own postcards and make their own postcards. I started receiving secrets in my home mailbox, not just with postmarks from Washington, D.C., but from Texas, California, Vancouver, New Zealand, Iraq. Soon my crazy idea didn't seem so crazy. Secrets can remind us of the countless human dramas of frailty and heroism playing out silently in the lives of people all around us, even now. What I'd like to do now is share with you a very special handful of secrets from that collection, starting with this one. Everyone who knew me before 9-11 believes I'm dead. I used to work with a bunch of uptight religious people, so sometimes I didn't wear panties and just had a big smile and chuckled to myself. <laughs> Inside this envelope is the ripped-up remains of a suicide note I didn't use. I feel like the happiest person on earth now. That Saturday when you wondered where I was, well, I was getting your ring. It's in my pocket right now. Some of the postcards come in envelopes. Even though I ask that they all come on postcards, I think there's something significant about how a secret is exposed to the whole mail-carrying process on a postcard. But some people, I think, want to guard or protect, cover their secrets until they reach my home. So, what's this one? Wow. I lost my virginity when I was 30. <laughs> you can see how secrets are so expansive. They can be hopes or dreams, confessions. Hmm. And because they're only on a postcard, six inches by four inches, it's a very finite amount of space. You really have to condense your thoughts and feelings, and so they can be pithy, they can be poetic. They're like these wonderful visual haikus. You know, it's interesting looking at like all these postcards that you get is that you would never see this kind of stuff on Facebook, right? Like no one would ever post these things on Facebook because we're like conditioned to put this facade forward, right? Like this thing that is only a part of who we are. Yeah, Post Secret is kind of like the anti-Facebook. Yeah. It's, uh, it's not what you would put on Facebook. It's the stuff you wouldn't put on Facebook. And I think that's what makes it so compelling for people to see. And maybe there's so much on Twitter and Facebook that the value of that when we see it isn't as high. But it's those hidden stories, those secrets, those feelings and fears that are so rare that we ever get a glimpse of, that when we see them, when we're exposed to them, they really make a deep impression on us. I wonder like, if a lot of people have secrets that they don't even know about. They're so buried, they're so deep inside of them that it's almost like you're your, your, your body and your mind are trying to protect you because yes. it doesn't want you to confront those secrets because yes. maybe you, you won't be able to, to handle it. One of the saddest things I've learned in this project is how in many ways the secrets that we're keeping aren't 
the greatest burden. They're not the ones constricting and restricting us. It's all the energy that we put into concealing them, the walls and barriers we develop between not just us and other people, but who we are and who we accept about who we are. And so for me, I think it's it's great to see somebody share a secret and see that feeling of not just letting the secret out, but also all that guardedness, all the defensives that were installed to protect that secret. This is the last postcard I have to share with you today. When people I love leave voicemails on my phone, I always save them in case they die tomorrow and I have no other way of hearing their voice ever again. When I posted this secret, dozens of people sent voicemail messages from their phones, sometimes ones they'd been keeping for years, messages from family or friends who had died. They said that by preserving those voices and sharing them, it helped them keep the spirit of their loved ones alive. One young girl posted the last message she ever heard from her grandmother. Secrets can take many forms. They can be shocking or silly or soulful. They can connect us with our deepest humanity or with people we'll never meet again. First saved voice message. It's somebody's birthday today. Somebody's birthday today. The candles I lighted on somebody's cake. And we're all invited for somebody's sake. You're 21 years old today. Have a real happy birthday. And I love you. I'm saying bye for now. Thank you. So after Frank Warren collects all those postcards from his mailbox, he scans some of them to post on postsecret.com. And then others he saves for his books. He's published about five of them so far. But many of the secrets feel too personal to share, and only Frank has seen them. And so in the end, he takes about 250 of them at a time, and he neatly rubber bands them into a brick. Here, feel one. It's about, what would you say, a pound of confessions? Oh, more than that. I'd say about two, two to three. And he stacks these bricks into a giant pyramid. It's against a wall in his basement. And he showed it to us, me and our producer, Brent. This is the main room here. Wow. And you can see there's a pile of secrets right there against the wall that's, that's taller than all three of us. There are hundreds of thousands of secrets in this pyramid of postcards. It's incredible. Each one has a picture, a drawing. This one has a leaf tape to it, a photograph, a necklace, a ring, a picture of Jack Nicholson, Wonder Woman, Marilyn Monroe, a mask that somebody wrote a secret on and mailed to me. Wow. Wow. I'll, I'll tell you a secret. I can't tell you on the tape, though. Can we stop? Yeah, here's a secret. I'm Guy Raz. More secrets in a moment. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Now more than ever, your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, all tailored to your short- and long-term goals. Backed by the strength and stability of a top-10 commercial bank, their dedicated experts work with you to build lasting success. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial, a member FDIC. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Easy Cater. Committed to helping companies, from nonprofits to the Fortune 500, find food for meetings and company events. With online ordering and 24-7 live support, learn more at easycater.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. 
To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about secrets. A few weeks into her freshman year at Ohio State, Ash Beckham kissed a woman for the first time. All of a sudden, everything made sense. I was like, oh, all, this is what love songs are about. It's like the world of romance and love all of a sudden made sense. So it must have been amazing. I mean, on campus you were pretty open about it? Oh, no, I actively tried to hide it. Um, Oh. You know, so I kind of had my straight world and my gay world, and those two worlds didn't meet. Like you were secretly dating a woman and and very few people knew. Oh, like that woman and I. (laughs) Okay, so this is all about 25 years ago. The world was a different place. There was no Ellen DeGeneres. There was no media portrayal of lesbian women. There were these kind of like negative stereotypes, if they existed at all. And Ash was scared because it wasn't just the secret about being gay that she was keeping. It was how being gay made her so much happier. To not be able to share the great things that were happening in my life with my parents became really hard for me. And when she'd go home at Thanksgiving or Christmas and see her family, she'd steer the conversation to things like weather or TV shows because the fear of being judged was so powerful that she just couldn't talk about her secret. And that feeling started to become corrosive. I was so, you know, angry and bitter and uncomfortable with who I was, you almost feel like when you're hiding something, you you know, you start to hunch over and you walk a little bit more stooped and you're like just physically protecting your heart, I feel like for lack of a, a better analogy. And, and so you, you actually physically in the world get smaller. By the time Ash was in her mid-20s, her relationship with her parents was distant. So one day, her mom reached out. Then my mom had said, um, you know, things seem different. Why? What's different? What's, you know, what's going on? And we don't talk about anything anymore. And we don't talk about anything that's important. And I feel like you're cutting us out of your life. And, I, you know, I was like, no, no, it's just busy out here. You know, you come up with a thousand excuses. And finally, she's like, are you questioning your sexuality? And I was like, yeah. And just like that? The secret wasn't secret anymore. It was an incredible feeling. But in some ways, it was just the beginning because Ash Beckham was still learning how to be open about who she was. Here's part of her story from the TED stage. I'm going to talk to you tonight about coming out of the closet. And not in the traditional sense, not just the gay closet. I think we all have closets. Your closet may be telling someone you love her for the first time or telling someone that you're pregnant or telling someone you have cancer, or any of the other hard conversations we have throughout our lives. All a closet is, is a hard conversation. And although our topics may vary tremendously, the experience of being in and coming out of the closet is universal. It is scary, and we hate it, and it needs to be done. Several years ago, I was working at the Southside Walnut Cafe And during my time there, I would go through phases of militant lesbian intensity. (laughs) Not shaving my armpits, quoting Ani DeFranco lyrics as gospel, and depending on the bagginess of my cargo shorts and how recently I had shaved my head, the question would often be sprung on me, usually by a little kid. Um, are you a boy or are you a girl? And there would be an awkward silence at the table. I clenched my jaw a little tighter, hold my coffee pot with a little more vengeance. The dad would awkwardly shuffle his newspaper and the mom would shoot a chilling stare at her kid. But I would say nothing, and I would seethe inside. And it got to the point that every time I walked up to a table that had a kid anywhere between three and 10 years old, I was ready to fight. (laughs) And that is a terrible feeling. So I promised myself the next time I would say something, I would have that hard conversation. So within a matter of weeks, it happens again. Are you a boy or are you a girl? Familiar silence, but this time I'm ready. And I am about to go all women's studies 101 on this table. (laughs) 
I've got my Betty Friedan quotes. I've got my Gloria Steinem quotes. I even got this little bit from Vagina Monologues I'm going to do. So I take a deep breath and I look down and staring back at me is a four-year-old girl in a pink dress. Not a challenge to a feminist duel, just a kid with a question. Are you a boy or are you a girl? So I take another deep breath, squat down next to her and say, hey, I I know it's kind of confusing. My hair is short like a boy's and I wear boy's clothes, but I'm a girl. And you know how sometimes you like to wear a pink dress and sometimes you like to wear your comfy jammies? Well, I'm more of a comfy jammies kind of girl. And this kid looks me dead in the eye without missing a beat and says, my favorite pajamas are purple with fish. Can I get a pancake, please? And that was it. Just, oh, okay, you're a girl. How about that pancake? I wonder if, in some ways, like, you're freer if you don't have any secrets. Like, if if you're just, if it's all out there, then it's like nobody can sort of hold anything over you, you know? Right. If you just are who you are in the world, I think there is a a huge freedom to being authentically who you are and that a lot of ways, you know, if you're limited in your ability to openly and honestly and authentically express yourself, your output to the world is less. Mm. There's a net loss to energy being put in a closet. Do you think do you think we keep secrets to protect ourselves? Oh, absolutely. A secret typically is holding what you perceive as one of your imperfections and those secrets are like the nitty-gritty of what's going on like those end up being your scars, the stuff that you would like photoshop out of your life if you could, but it's just who you genuinely are and you find out that the people that you interact with on a daily basis or care about do have these imperfections that empowers people to show theirs too. So like many of us, I've lived in a few closets in my life and yeah, most often my walls happen to be rainbow. But inside in the dark You can't tell what color the walls are. You just know what it feels like to live in a closet. So really, my closet is no different than yours, or yours, or yours. Sure, I'll give you a hundred reasons why coming out of my closet was harder than coming out of yours, but here's the thing. Hard is not relative, hard is hard. Who can tell me that explaining to someone you just declared bankruptcy is harder than telling someone you just cheated on them? Who can tell me that his coming out story is harder than telling your five-year-old you're getting a divorce. There is no harder, there is just hard. We need to stop ranking our heart against everyone else's heart to make us feel better or worse about our closets and just commiserate on the fact that we all have hard. At some point in our lives, we all live in closets and they may feel safe, or at least safer than what lies on the other side of that door. But I am here to tell you, no matter what your walls are made of, a closet is no place for a person to live. Hard conversations are still not my strong suit. Ask anybody I have ever dated. But I'm getting better, and I follow what I like to call the three pancake girl principles. Now, please, view this through gay-colored lenses, but know what it takes to come out of any closet is essentially the same. Number one. Be authentic. Take the armor off. Be yourself. That kid in the cafe had no armor, but I was ready for battle. If you want someone to be real with you, they need to know that you bleed too. Number two, be direct. Just say it. Rip the Band-Aid off. If you know you are gay, just say it. And number three, and most important, you are speaking your truth. Never apologize for that. And some folks may have gotten hurt along the way. So sure, apologize for what you've done, but never apologize for who you are. And yeah, some folks may be disappointed, but that is on them, not on you. Those are their expectations of who you are, not yours. That is their story, not yours. The only story that matters is the one that you want to write. I mean, it sounds almost too simple, but revealing a secret, I mean, can really change your life. Oh, yeah. There are a few things that can happen to you externally that can be more impactful than being honest with yourself. 
I mean, me finally coming out changed the course of my life. And when you kind of give yourself permission to be who you are, the impact that that has on everything from, you know, your physical stature to your emotional health to your physical well-being to the people you bring into your life, there is nothing more impactful than giving yourself permission to do that. Ash Beckham lives in Boulder, Colorado. Check out her full talk at ted.npr.org. By the way, Ash recently revealed another secret. About four days ago, I proposed to my girlfriend, and for a week I had to keep it from her. And I, that oh, was really... congratulations. Oh, thank you. She said yes, so I was excited. <laughs> so up to this point, we've been hearing about personal secrets, right? Secrets that we keep to protect ourselves or, or even the people we love. But what about secrets that can actually affect the lives of millions of people? Secrets that are worth billions of dollars. This story begins about 25 years ago. Charmian Gooch was a young activist, and she and some friends wanted to stop human rights abuses in Cambodia. And they suspected that the brutal Khmer Rouge regime in that country was funding itself by trading in illegal timber. So Charmian and the activists went to Cambodia with their own secret. They pretended they were timber buyers. Did anybody ever suspect that you were not timber buyers? Um, yes. Yes, a couple of times, a few times, we had to sort of make a run for it back to the car and get out of there. We had a sort of few little codes for things weren't going well. But generally, it worked. We used secret cameras, pinhole cameras, gathering evidence and put that evidence out to the world and challenged authority. Charmian and the other activists exposed and then helped to shut down that whole operation. And eventually they formed a group. They're now called Global Witness. And that was the beginning of a mission to expose the secrets of corruption. Tell me about what you did in, in Angola in 1997. You went there as a tourist or a buyer or what was your... How did you no. do that? Um, I, I had a different cover uh, story, um, which to this day, I don't think the Angolan government ever worked out what my story was. What did you do? You just, when you flew down there, you just said you're, there's a tourist or? I, I, well, I'm, I'm obviously not answering the question. Oh, I see. Right. <laughs> Got it. Give it to me. Okay, remember... Charmian was there to expose a dark secret. You are here to help us in our struggle against the government. I'm here to do business with Commander Zero, all right? You might remember the movie Blood Diamond. Leonardo DiCaprio plays a character who buys diamonds from violent rebel groups in Africa. Well, Charmian's secret operation helped expose the illegal diamond trade. I was just trying to understand how it was that diamonds were involved in funding a very long-running civil war in Angola. According to a devastating report by Global Witness, these stones are being used to purchase arms and finance civil war. And Global Witness has been doing this kind of stuff for 20 years now. And we look at that nexus where environmental destruction, corruption, conflict, and natural resources all collide together. Charmian Gooch and her team fight to expose all kinds of corporate secrets for one very simple reason. If you're in a country that more than 70% of the population are below the poverty line, they're trying to get by on a couple of dollars a day, and then you find out somewhere down the line that your president or the cronies around him have made some massive minerals deal, an oil, gas, or some other minerals deal, how does that make you feel? It's not an okay way, it's not a fair way to do business, and that has to be challenged and is being challenged. In her TED Talk, Charmian Gooch focused on a particular kind of secret, one that she thinks is especially problematic. I've come here today to talk to you about a problem. It's a very simple yet devastating problem, one that spans the globe and is affecting all of us. The problem is anonymous companies. It sounds like a really dry and technical thing, doesn't it? But anonymous companies are making it difficult and sometimes impossible to find out 
uh, the actual human beings responsible sometimes for really terrible crimes. So many of the countries rich in natural resources like oil or diamonds are home to some of the poorest and most dispossessed people on the planet. And much of this injustice is made possible by currently accepted business practices. And one of these is anonymous companies. Now, we've come up against anonymous companies in lots of our investigations, like in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where we exposed how secretive deals involving anonymous companies had deprived the citizens of one of the poorest countries on the planet of well over a billion dollars. That's twice the country's health and education budget combined. Or in Liberia, where an international predatory logging company used front companies as it attempted to grab a really huge chunk of Liberia's unique forests. Or political corruption in Sarawak, Malaysia, which has led to the destruction of much of its forests. Well, that uses anonymous companies too. We secretly filmed some of the family of the former chief minister and a lawyer as they told our undercover investigator exactly how these dubious deals are done using such companies. And the awful thing is, there are so many other examples out there from all walks of life. Can you describe a company that we would have heard of, that we know of, and that there might be evidence that even that company at the highest levels knew what was going on? I could talk about this interesting deal where Shell and the Italian oil company ENI, or ENI, paid just over a billion dollars for the rights to an oil block in Nigeria. They paid those billion dollars, 1.1 billion, to the Nigerian government. And then the Nigerian government transferred exactly the same amount into a front company. Um, oh, owned that, by, by a government official? It appears to be the case. A Nigerian oil minister. That money was then went off into a whole lot more shell companies. And that's where it becomes very hard to know who actually really, really and ultimately benefited. So we, uh, Global Witness and others, found all sorts of emails from senior people within both of those big oil companies talking about meetings and money. And it was very, very hard, if not simply incredible, to believe that big, complex, sophisticated multinational oil companies didn't understand who they were really doing business with. That's Charmian Gooch. When we come back in just a moment, we'll hear more from Charmian about how things have changed in the four years since we spoke with her and the ways secrecy influences not only the government, but also people like you and me. And if you're listening on the radio, you can always hear the show whenever and wherever you are by subscribing to our podcast. It's easy. Just tap on the podcast app on your smartphone and look for TED Radio Hour. And of course, hit subscribe. I'm Guy Raz, and this is the TED Radio Hour from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Planet Oat. While some podcast topics can be complex and pretty heady, Planet Oat oat milk is an uncomplicated no-brainer. It's rich, creamy, and an excellent source of calcium with vitamins A and D. Also, Planet Oat's unsweetened varieties have zero grams of sugar. It's great in coffee, cereal, smoothies, you name it. So next time you're at the grocery store, save the overthinking for the podcast and reach for the one that has it all. Planet Oat Oat Milk or visit planetoat.com for more. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about keeping secrets. So before the break, we were hearing from Charmian Gooch, who fights corruption around the world. Now, since we last spoke with Charmian, the world has changed. And it seems like corporate and government corruption has 
just gotten worse, right? Is it the bleakest time ever, effectively, is what you're asking? Is it the bleakest time ever? Um, I think it's unprecedented. I just can't remember a time where everything was rushing so fast and so unpredictably. I mean, people ask me about Brexit. We're all scratching our heads at how it can have gotten to such a state. And the one thing I know is I don't have a clue what's going to happen next. And I think that really holds true globally. Yeah. When, when you think about huge forces that are shaping our world today, like Britain's departure from the European Union or the 2016 election in the U.S., could you make a parallel between the sort of the secrecy of like dark money going into political campaigns, whether it's to promote the Leave campaign in Brexit or certain election outcomes in the U.S. or armies of social media bots that are are using social media to influence people. I mean, are we sort of seeing now a new kind of secrecy? It's an interesting question. I I think that corruption has many, many masks, many approaches of, of doing what it does. I think we're seeing the exploring of the misuse of new technology, social media platforms, ways of moving money, ways of creating so-called public voices. And I think we're sort of seeing the inevitable flexing of that, really, as, as people see how it can be misused. And I think the fact that we're talking about it, the fact that a lot of organisations, a lot of journalists are investigating it and reporting on it is a really good thing because I think it's it's dragging it out into the open. I, I want to ask you about secrets. I mean, do you think it has become more difficult for corporations to behave in devious and secretive ways today than it was five years ago or 10 years ago? Or do you think it's actually easier? Well, I think corporations are beginning to realise there's a higher risk of getting caught and that what is being considered acceptable is changing. But in terms of your broader question, is it easier? Um, well, I would say it's getting harder because in the five years since we spoke, it's going to be the law in you know across the whole of the European Union, which is 28 countries, mm. for public registries of who are the beneficial owners, who are the actual real people who own companies. And that was a major step forward. And in America, I mean, despite the um, massive change in sort of political climate, you know, five years ago, maybe a handful of Republicans understood the problem of anonymous companies. And, you know, last year, there were about six committees led by Republicans that were looking at the problem of anonymous companies across a whole swathes of American life. So I think there's been a huge shift in America itself. So is there a change? Has it got harder for companies to keep secrets? There's more of a spotlight and things have changed. I mean, certainly in terms of that campaign. And I think also, yes, there is the whole kind of dark market and, and all of the potential for online crime, but also online tools for tracking what companies are doing, for crunching through millions of data points and drawing out information have got stronger and better than ever. So I I think actually, I think things are getting better. That's Charmian Gooch. She's an anti-corruption activist and the co-founder of Global Witness. You can see both of her talks at TED.com. So with all the ways that we can be tracked now and like our secrets can be tracked, how do we stay below the radar? You can use encryption, which I do. You can use certain phone services that are very, very difficult for the government to tap into, which I do. Um, You can try and use cash more often than credit cards or debit cards or not use a cell phone. Glenn Greenwald knows how to keep secrets. He also knows how to share them. Really, really big secrets. In 2013, he got access to thousands of government documents that were given to him by the former NSA contractor Edward Snowden. And in those documents, lots of things governments around the world did not want us to know about how they were gathering massive amounts of cell phone and internet data about us. So why should you care? Well, here's Glenn's answer, as told on the TED stage. 
There is an entire genre of YouTube videos devoted to an experience which I am certain that everyone in this room has had. It entails an individual who, thinking they're alone, engages in some expressive behavior, wild singing, gyrating dancing, some mild sexual activity, only to discover that, in fact, they are not alone, that there is a person watching and lurking, the discovery of which causes them to immediately cease what they're doing in horror. The sense of shame and humiliation in their face is palpable. It's the sense of, this is something I'm willing to do only if no one else is watching. This is the crux of the work on which I have been singularly focused, the question of why privacy matters, a question that has arisen in the context of a global debate enabled by the revelations of Edward Snowden that the United States and its partners, unbeknownst to the entire world, has converted the internet, once heralded as an unprecedented tool of liberation and democratization, into an unprecedented zone of mass indiscriminate surveillance. Okay, so Edward Snowden comes to you with like thousands of documents. How did you decide what to write about? When Edward Snowden came to us, he essentially said that, you know, he had the ability, obviously, to take all of those documents and simply upload them onto the Internet. And he said he did not want to do that, that he instead wanted every document subjected to the standard journalistic test, which is does the public interest of publishing them outweigh the potential harm that you might cause by doing so? There are a lot of secrets that we came into the possession of which we didn't publish. Um, we published a small percentage, actually, of the material that he gave us in recognition of the idea that even governments have the right to keep certain secrets. Obviously, if we had the nuclear codes, we wouldn't publish those. We wouldn't publish the names of covert agents um, who were in the field and whose identity would be destroyed. If, if a government is at war, they have the right to keep their war plans secret in terms of troop movements and the like. So things of that nature. And there's a lot of categories like that. So some people listening to this, Glenn, would say, like, how come you're the one who gets to decide? Well, I, first of all, I think it's important to recognize that, you know, if you're a responsible journalist, you're never actually making that choice by yourself. Um, there's always, you know, even if people within the news organization all agree in the beginning that it's something that should be published, we encourage people to take the position that it shouldn't be published just so we can have the debate. But then we also go to the government and we invite the government to make their best case about why specific information shouldn't be published. And although we usually reject their request not to publish, there have been a couple of occasions when they have offered persuasive rationale and, and we didn't. I mean, so you've never been in a position where you where you thought after the fact, I, sh I shouldn't have done that. Like, that's a secret I should not have reported. No, no, definitely not. Like, when I lay awake at night wondering um, whether I made the right decisions, what bothers me way more is not the question of whether I published too much. It's whether or not we've published enough. There is a very common sentiment, even among people who are uncomfortable with mass surveillance, which says that only people who are engaged in bad acts have a reason to want to hide and to care about their privacy. The people who are actually saying that are engaged in a very extreme act of self-deprecation. What they're really saying is, I have agreed to make myself such a harmless and unthreatening and uninteresting person that I actually don't fear having the government know what it is that I'm doing. This mindset has found what I think is its purest expression in a 2009 interview with the longtime CEO of Google, Eric Schmidt, who, when asked about all the different ways his company is causing invasions of privacy for hundreds of millions of people around the world, said this. He said, if you're doing something that you don't want other people to know, maybe you shouldn't be doing it in the first place. I mean, a lot of people would agree with that, right? I mean, like in the case of the government, people might say, okay, you know, so the government might be collecting data about me, but I mean, at least they're trying to, to keep us safe from terrorists and, and I'm not doing anything wrong anyway, so, so why should I care? Well, there's several reasons. I mean, first of all, there's a very long history of the government being able to use exactly that kind of power for all sorts of nefarious purposes, whether it's spying on 
Martin Luther King or other civil rights and anti-war activists. So even if you're not somebody who is a civil rights leader or who wants to be an activist for democracy, you have a really strong interest in having the people who are being able to do those things without fear that they're being monitored and blackmailed. Another thing I would say to them is that People who live in a surveillance society are being harmed by it, even if they don't realize it. If you're alone in the bedroom or the bathroom and you're singing in the shower, you're willing to be really expressive. But if you realize that somebody's actually able to see what you're doing, you become much more restrained. And that's a trivial example, but it shows the harm of living in a surveillance state, even if you're somebody who doesn't think that harm exists. I mean, the thing is that like people voluntarily give up secrets every day, right? I mean, they, they like feed tons of data points into Facebook. I mean, so, so couldn't you argue that nothing is, is really secret anymore? No, I don't think you can argue that. Um, I think that it's certainly true that part of what we are are social animals, which means we do have a necessity for other people to know what we're thinking and doing and achieving, which is why people who are put into solitary confinement go insane because it's just such a violation um, of the human condition. But there is a an at least equally critical aspect to being a human being into what constitutes human nature, and that is the desire to seek out privacy, a place where we can go where nobody knows what it is that we're doing. Over the last 16 months, as I've debated this issue around the world, every single time somebody has said to me, I don't really worry about invasions of privacy because I don't have anything to hide, I always say the same thing to them. I get out a pen... I write down my email address. I say, here's my email address. What I want you to do when you get home is email me the passwords to all of your email accounts, not just the nice, respectable work one in your name, but all of them, because I want to be able to just troll through what it is you're doing online, read what I want to read and publish whatever I find interesting. After all, if you're not a bad person, if you're doing nothing wrong, you should have nothing to hide. Not a single person has taken me up on that offer. I, I, I check that email account religiously all the time. It's a very desolate place. And there's a reason for that, which is that we as human beings, even those of us who in words disclaim the importance of our own privacy, instinctively understand the profound importance of it. There are all sorts of things that we do and think that we're willing to tell our physician or our lawyer or our psychologist or our spouse or our best friend that we would be mortified for the rest of the world to learn. I mean, people who, who know about you, right, think of you as somebody who exposes secrecy, right? But I wonder whether it's actually the opposite, that you think secrets are, are things that people should be allowed to keep and in order to do that, you sort of made this this decision to expose a larger secret. Yeah, I think it's a good point. I mean, there is an irony in the fact that we do believe that what we are doing is protecting the value of individual privacy, and yet we're doing it by publishing things that other people have tried to keep secret. But I think the central point to realize about that is that there is one faction that is invading people's privacy and another faction who are essentially the victims of it. And what we've really done is expose this process of invasion of privacy, this victimizing, in order, as you say, to maximize um, people's ability to keep their own secrets. Do, do you think that in the future it will be easier or, or like harder for democracies to keep huge secrets from their citizens? It's much. It's going to be much, much harder. In fact, bordering on impossible. A lot of this has to do with the way that information is stored. So 40 years ago, when Daniel Ellsberg wanted to leak the Pentagon Papers, 9,000 pages of top secret material, one of the primary obstacles he had was how do you even photocopy 9,000 top secret pages without being detected? Now, because of the way the digital way that information is stored, you can copy probably 10,000 Pentagon Papers in less than 30 minutes. It's really impossible to safeguard that information. I mean, Edward Snowden and Chelsea Manning and others took huge amounts of data right under the nose of the U.S. military and the U.S. government without any detection whatsoever. I mean, if it's going to be harder for the, for governments to keep secrets simply because of the way data is stored, isn't it going to be harder for all of us to keep secrets? 
Sure. And, you know, one of the most important outcomes, I think, of the Snowden reporting is that the the way people now understand the extent to which their individual privacy is being compromised has created this massive demand for technologies designed to do exactly that, to protect our data. So there are companies and activists all over the world working to create better encryption programs so that if we send an email, it is surrounded by an electronic shell that neither the U.S. government or the Chinese government nor corporations can possibly invade in order to protect our data from that kind of unwarranted collection. It is a realm of privacy, the ability to go somewhere where we can think and reason and interact and speak without the judgmental eyes of others being cast upon us, in which creativity and exploration and dissent exclusively reside. And that is the reason why when we allow a society to exist in which we're subject to constant monitoring, we allow the essence of human freedom to be severely crippled. The renowned socialist activist Rosa Luxemburg once said, he who does not move does not notice his chains. We can try and render the chains of mass surveillance invisible or undetectable, but the constraints that it imposes on us do not become any less potent. Thank you very much. Thank you. Glenn Greenwald, he's the editor of The Intercept. His most recent book is No Place to Hide. You can see his whole talk at ted.npr.org. Hey, thanks for listening to our show on secrets. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Megan Kane, Neva Grant, and Chris Benderev, with help from Daniel Shukin. Barton Girdwood is our intern. In the front office, Eric Newsom and Portia Robertson-Migas. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, June Cohen, Darren Triff, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure. AI may be the most important new computer technology ever, but AI needs a lot of processing speed, and that gets expensive fast. Upgrade to the next generation of the cloud, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure. OCI is the single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. Do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic. Take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR.